Let's look to our Lord in prayer. So, Father, we want to make this both personal and to understand its implications, how it relates in terms of the global. Palm Sunday, the entrance into Jerusalem, the anticipation. All that paves the way for the second coming, our Lord's return, and his relationship to Jerusalem. Show us the Jerusalem strategy and how it fits in all these verses and how it relates to today. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. Come here now, Father, again to see Jesus and, and him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. America seems to have a challenge when it comes to royalty, doesn't it? Think 1776. One of the slogans during the Revolutionary War was, we will serve no sovereign here. But what this passage of Scripture describes is the ultimate king of kings and lord of lords. Sometimes we've got to look elsewhere to see how people respond to royalty. Take, for example, this article that comes out of the Chicago Tribune from 2002. The former ruler of Afghanistan, Mohammad Zahir Shah, returns to his homeland after 30 years of exile. Listen to this kind of welcome. Thousands of invited guests lined up for hours at the airport. People gathered on the streets leading to a refurbished seven-bedroom villa to see their former king. Delegations arrived from across Afghanistan's 32 provinces, governors and their advisors, members of women's groups as well, carrying posters of the king, most of the interim administration, royalists, warlords, men in turbans, others in suits, they all converged on the pockmarked runway where shells of bombed airplanes lay. Two red carpets were laid out. The newly trained honor guard was on hand. Young women and children in traditional embroidered dress met their king with flowers and poems. And when I read that years ago, I thought of Palm Sunday. This is a story about when people position themselves to greet their king. But what interests me is that in this greeting of the king, there is a greeting that relates to the first coming, and there's a greeting as well that pertains to the second coming, and that's what we want to draw out. Now, there's two aspects of Jesus Christ's kingship that are being promised here in these verses they were penned by a 5th century B.C. prophet. It's extraordinary in the amount of detail that Zechariah utilizes. A 5th century B.C. prophet that can get down to talking about what kind of means by which the king is going to enter into Jerusalem. This has to be the fingerprints of God on these verses. 
So there's two aspects now of royalty I want to draw out for us. The first comes out of verse 9 and 10, and we're going to put it like this. The first in this messianic promise of Jesus Christ. Note first of all with me, our king's what I will call personal advancement toward Jerusalem. He is making his way. He's arriving on the scene. Jerusalem is his goal. Now, it begins just as we would read about it in the gospel accounts, whether it be Matthew or again in John. There's excitement out on the streets. Royalty is appearing. There's anticipation in the air. And so there is a dual emphasis upon response. The first, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. The second, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. The emphasis here now is upon the location. It's the epicenter of the world, Jerusalem. I want you now to be thinking about the significance of such things as embassies repositioning themselves in Jerusalem. Be thinking about 1948, all the events surrounding, right after the Holocaust, the establishment of Israel's state, and the pivotal positioning of people in positions of responsibility in Jerusalem, when all of a sudden, and you see it now on the screen, he utilizes a visual word to seize your attention. He uses the word behold. He wants you to take a good hard look at what's being stated. Fifth century B.C. prophet. At this point now, all that the people have done upon returning from from their dispersed settings in the land of Persia, less than 50,000 of them, they've begun their work on building a temple. And they're in an impoverished state. He is painting Jerusalem in all of its glory. There's a disconnect here, isn't there? Yet he says, behold, he wants to get their attention at this point. And then he adds these words. Your king, your king is coming to you. Now, they had great hopes of kingship in the past. There is David. And he reigned, and Solomon, they reigned. But they've been dispersed by the Assyrians and by the Babylonians. But now they're returning, and there's just less than 50,000 of them in the outskirts of Jerusalem, and we're talking about a king. We don't even have our temple completely constructed at this point. Yet, behold, your king is coming to you. There's celebration on the streets. Notice how this king at this point is being described. Righteous, having salvation, is he. Aslan. The last battle. Aslan says, well done, last of the kings of Narnia, who stood firm at the darkest hour. Shift out of fiction into... Recent history, Shah Iran appears needing medical attention in the United States of America. He's deposed in a revolution. We're still experiencing the effects of it. Dies from cancer. 
the Shah. His name fully means Shah and Shah. You know what Shah and Shah means? King of Kings. And immediately your mind leaps forward to Revelation chapter 19, where in verse 16, the king and his reappearance in Jerusalem is described as on his thigh of his robe, he has a, a name written King Kings, Lord of Lords. And you're in 5th century BC. But notice the specificity here, as now he begins to develop our understanding of the nature of this king, he uses words like righteous, salvation is he, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, whipped through them, righteous. He is righteous. Furthermore, he dies for the unrighteous, so that when we put faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we are declared righteous, you see. Wrapped up in this one, making his way to Jerusalem. Salvation is he. He is saved from death three days later, raised from the dead. We, in turn, experience salvation. Because of his death and resurrection, putting faith and trust in him, the penalty of sin is paid. The power of sin present is broken. The, the presence of sin future abolished. All of this wrapped up now in this royal figure described here. First as righteous. Second, salvation is he. Thirdly, humble sitting in Colorado Springs years ago, breakfast. At the table is Lauren Sani, former president of the Navigators. Now they're known, well known, for their servant attitude, and one of the businessmen at the table asked Lauren Sani, how do you know when you have a servant's attitude? Sani's reply was classic by how you act when you're treated like one. And when I heard Lawrence Sandy say that, my mind went to Philippians chapter 2, where Jesus Christ is being described likewise in this whole matter of humility. Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself, there you have it, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now we have this king, 5th century B.C., Notice the detail by which Zechariah is describing this to a population of less than 50,000 that they're going to be thinking about in terms of a global king. Seems to be a disconnect at that point, but God stands outside of time, sees past, present, and future, all in your present tense, you see. 
So he says he's righteous. Salvation is he, humble, and mounted on a donkey. You look at that at that point, and you say, you know something, Gary? I would have thought that he would have been mounted on a horse, and I get that. But you and I have got to bear in mind that in the first coming, the symbol of entrance into Jerusalem was the donkey. In the second coming, the symbol of entrance is the horse. In ancient Near East, the donkey was viewed as the preferred mount of kings who would be arriving in a peaceful manner. The fact that in the first coming, Messiah is not on a horse says that at this point, he's not coming as conqueror. He's coming as the substitute for your sins and mine. He's on a donkey. But on this second coming matter, if you read very carefully once again in Revelation chapter 19, the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos tells us, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So now you've got the donkey, first coming. You've got the horse, second coming. Imagery, you see, of the purpose of the first coming, purpose of the second coming. But now notice the specifics. Again, you are 5th century B.C., and yet notice the degree to which he can go and describe the way in which Messiah is entering into Jerusalem. It's not enough to say mounted on a donkey. No. He adds... On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, your eyes ought to get big at that point. That God can so describe the nuances and the details of this entrance into Jerusalem first time. What should be the response of the people? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're singing, Hosanna in the highest. But what you and I have got to bear in mind is the collision of attitudes on the streets of Jerusalem. The people that are heading from Galilee toward Jerusalem, they've seen the miraculous, and they're, and they're excited about what Jesus Christ, the miracle maker, can produce. But the religionists inside the city limits of Jerusalem they are somewhat opposed to Jesus at this point, and we become even more so via the Pharisees. And so there's a question of the hour in Matthew chapter 21, verse 10. He enters Jerusalem. And we're told the whole city was stirred up. The Greek word there at that point carries out the idea of stirred as if in an earthquake. They've been shaken. Here's what's interesting to me. It's incredible. You connect the dots. When Christ was born, wise men appear from the east, from the regions of which the Jews had been dispersed, had they been sharing the good news of Messiah to come. The wise men appear where? In Jerusalem. 
And they're asking the question, where is he who's born, what? King of the Jews. Where did they go? Jerusalem. And you and I are told that in the Matthew chapter 2 account, Herod and Jerusalem, the population, were shaken. Shook up. You're connecting dots? Now you connect the dot not only between first coming and second coming, you're connecting the dots between Christ's birth and Christ's death. Meanwhile, back to the text, you're still in, you're still in 5th century B.C. as you're reflecting upon these things. And you're wondering, how can this be? Verse 9 deals with the first coming of Jesus Christ. His personal advancement toward Jerusalem. What's interesting, and it's still on the screen, is that in verse 10, this deals with the second coming of Jesus Christ and his personal advancement into Jerusalem. In other words, the massive amount of time between first comings and second comings need to be understood in the relationship of verse 9 and verse 10. How do you do this? How do you understand this? Let's pause and go back to an analogy I've used occasionally through the years. I'm an intern pastor, and I arrive on the scene. I'm still testing whether I'm to be a, a pastor or not, thinking things through. And the senior pastor asks, Gary, would you be willing to take a, a group of college students to Quebec and we're going to do some rappelling? We're going to go out on various islands, do 24-hour solos. I'm game. We arrive on the scene, hydroplanes. We're positioned on various islands, and I'm responsible to make sure that 20-some young adults are all being properly cared for. I've got my binoculars. I'm on this small mountain. There's vast distance between where I'm positioned, and the next mountain. And then there's a third mountain off in the distance. And I can see people on the second mountain, I can see people on the third mountain, but what I can't determine is the degree of distance between the second mountain and the third mountain, because from my binoculars, it looks like they're all at the same level, you see. This is how you understand verse 9 as it relates to verse 10. There's an expanse of time between verse 9 and verse 10, but for the average reader, they'd be looking at it, it looks like everybody, everybody is, all this is happening at the same time until you realize first coming is donkey, second coming is horse. Now all of a sudden, you kick in second coming and conquest, military, imagery, stands out, leaps out in front of you. Notice the wording. He uses military imagery from that time period. We've got to look for the equivalencies of today. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. You read that at that point, and you're trying to figure out what's the significance of the, of the chariot and of Ephraim. Well, Ephraim signified, you see, the people of the north. Then he goes on to say, and the war horse from Jerusalem... And that pertains to the people of the south. And the battle bowl shall be cut off. 
Notice then it says, and he shall speak peace to the nations. In other words, all it takes is the word of God. Now, if you read Revelation chapter 19 very carefully, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. He speaks and things happen. Sticks and stones may break my bones. But in this case, it's not the sticks and stones that come into play here. It's the word that matters. And furthermore, he says, and he shall speak peace to the nations. And all of a sudden, he's gone global on you. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Here is what's interesting. In verses 1 down through verse 8, all the geography that's described there has not yet been fulfilled in history means it's still to come. This has got millennialism all smacked all over it. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. In other words, don't restrict God. Next time you're in New York City, there in New York City is the oldest map. During colonial times, city planners envisioned that New York would be the epicenter. And they divided the city into broad avenues that crisscrossed the city, used consecutive numbering system. Now get this and smile. Starting with the first street, they went deep into the unsettled countryside. Get that? How far? They could see no further than 19th Street. They thought that's about as far as it's going to go. No city could grow beyond that. So it got nicknamed Boundary Avenue. But Boundary Avenue is now part of New York's inner city. The original numbering system had been expanded to cover 284th Street and beyond. And now what God is doing to this small group of people that are somewhat impoverished in Jerusalem is to say, think big. Your God is big. Your God is sovereign. Your God can see the future better than you can understand your past. Is he your God? In this messianic promise of Jesus Christ, note that our king's personal advancement toward Jerusalem is described here, but he is juxtaposed in verse 9, the first coming, to in verse 10, the second coming. And now then, I want to draw out the second aspect of this kingship because in the messianic promise of Jesus Christ, again, 5th century B.C., before Jesus is born in Bethlehem, you see, note second of all, our king's global accomplishments through Jerusalem. And now you pick it up in verse 11, and there's certain phrases that stand out. Verse 11. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. At this point, you're looking at that, and you say, blood of the covenant. 
blood of the covenant. Where have I heard that before? Well, this Thursday night, Monday, Thursday, we're going to be serving communion. And in that upper room, in Mark 14, you and I are told in verse 24, he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Fifth century B.C., you have got this promise already being delivered. That's your God, you see. As for you, also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I'll set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Throughout your Older Testament, when blood is shed, it has to do with the fact that there was a substitution. An animal was substituted. But the ultimate Lamb of God, as you and I know, is Jesus Christ. When you see blood, think substitution. And then find a way to figure out how to connect what took place this past Friday in France, to what you're going to say when you're standing at the water cooler and talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and its relevance for today. Because Lieutenant Colonel Arnold Beltram, 45, was shot in the neck Friday after offering to take the place of a woman during a gunman's assault in France. President Macron said, Lieutenant Colonel Beltram died in the service of the nation with which he had already contributed so much. But then another statement was made by the police force. As Friday's attack was underway, Beltram offered to exchange himself for one of the female hostages. He was shut. And his blood was spilled to set her free. Do you see a natural segue between the events that have just taken place internationally and how this relates historically? Most significantly, how this relates redemptively for you and me. Use the news and make your way to the cross. Now, Jesus is setting up his control center in Jerusalem. And the first coming paves the way for the second coming. But first and second comings pertain to Jerusalem have in common his kingship. What is fascinating now is that you continue to work with this. His headquarters is in Jerusalem. And you and I are told prophetically, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. And you say, yeah, waterless pit can't relate. You've got to remember at this point, there were no jails in that day in which Zechariah wrote. Instead, cisterns, holes in the ground, normally served as, as means for collecting rainwater during rainy seasons, doubled to serve as jails when somebody was meant to be incarcerated. What he's saying now is, I am coming to set the prisoners free. You and I pondered then, freed from the penalty of sin, paid. Freed from the power of sin, broken. 
will be freed from the presence of sin. Future, first comings, second comings, all tied together in the imagery here. So he says, return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore, that I will restore to you double. And you say, well, what does that mean? This means first that as God's firstborn, the Jews would receive a double share of their inheritance. And what he is telling us furthermore is that he is setting now people free and there is this great movement in that final day back to Israel in general, Jerusalem in particular. Return to your stronghold of prisoners of hope. Today I declare I restore to you double. And this is the promise to his firstborn, the Jews. And then the blessing flows forth to the Gentile population as well who put faith and trust in the ultimate Jew, Jesus. But read on. Shades of Armageddon. For I have bent Judah as my bow, northern tribes. See the reunification of people? I have made Ephraim its arrow, northern tribes. He's using now the imagery of archery and warfare to help us to understand his purposes. I'll stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. And he is now speaking also immediately as well as ultimately because who will be the next conqueror to come after the Medes and Persians? Alexander the Great, representing the Greeks, against your sons, O Greece. Another installment leading towards that final installment described in Revelation. And wield you like a warrior's sword. So now what you found in verses 11 through 13 in the second aspect are king's global accomplishments through Jerusalem. And it's all rooted in that phrase, the blood of the covenant. In verse 14, you take a second significant phrase. And this is the appearance of the Lord. The blood of the covenant, the appearance of the Lord, and look at the imagery. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. In other words, he's using now the imagery of a storm that's approaching. So now you look at all the tensions of the hour globally. He's saying, storm clouds, weather watch. His arrow will go forth like lightning, and furthermore, the Lord God will sound, will sound the trumpet at this point, and will march forth in the whirlwinds south. The thunder is the Lord's trumpet. So in what is known as a theophany here, an appearance of God, you have got both now the idea of thunder as well as lightning. In other words, he's saying that there's a future storm that needs to be understood. But to put it in proper context now, you've got to bear in mind you're dealing not only with a first coming, you're dealing with a second coming. And you've got a sovereign God who's got everything under control. As you watch global tensions continue to mount. So he moves you now from the covenant, you see. This covenant this blood covenant, 
in 11 through 13, through the Lord's appearance in 14, to now this victory celebration beginning in verse 15. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl and drenched like the corners of the altar. And you take the word altar there, and you link it right back to what took place with the, with the covenant that God established via blood. And now you see the purposes of how the first coming links to the second coming and how the donkey imagery paves way to the horse imagery. And all of this comes under one major theme, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. You take a deep breath in that final day. And you're marveling because you have now, from Zechariah 9, seen the vast sum of history unfold in front of your very eyes. Redemptively, first coming. Militarily, second coming. What do you do with all this? Check out verse 17. For how great is his goodness. How great is beauty. Hit the pause button. I read that and smiled and pulled out a cod from my files. Around the time of 9-11. First family at that time, George W. Bush, Laura Bush, always included a, a scripture verse on their Christmas cards. But after 9-11, she had to figure out a verse that would apply to the needs of the hour. What verse do you use for the first Christmas after such trauma? Get this. She chose to use Psalm 27, verse 13, which says, I am still confident in this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, which was the poetic way of describing what Zechariah is doing prophetically with the words, for how great is his goodness, how great his beauty. So Zechariah turns to these impoverished people at this point, trying to make ends meet around Jerusalem. Grain shall make the young men flourish. New wine, the young women. He's saying, here's your future. It's wrapped up in your king. There's a first coming. There's a second coming, and there's one common theme. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's stand together. We've examined this historically. We've examined this futuristically. We see the poetic as well as the prophetic. We spot the imageries, donkey, then horse to come. And it gives us greater understanding of the significance of a Palm Sunday. The means by which the royal one establishes his 
control center so that the world may recognize he is King of kings and Lord of lords. For the one coming into any of these services today who is not submitted to the authority of Jesus Christ, allowing for their private life as well as their public life to be one under you, I pray that she or he will simply repent of sin, put faith exclusively in Jesus Christ, and find the real peace that surpasses all understanding in Jesus and him alone. I praise you for this, Father. I praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.